Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hey, hey, hello, and welcome. This is Drive-by Cinema, Season 4, Episode 19. With me agreeing to spend approximately two hours a week recording a podcast so that I might call him at least an acquaintance, is my co-host Paul. (laughs) I don't know what I did to deserve that, but here I am. Thank you, Richard. And I'm Rick. Yes, Paul. Yes. Last week, I did promise an explanation of how GPS works, but... We could, as an alternative, discuss politics and current affairs, which seems to be hot topic right now. Up to you. Which which do you want? Uh, the second. Yeah, you want hot politics. Off the press politics. Yeah. Okay, so here, let me ask you this simple question, Paul. So yes or no question? Yes, I voted Lib Dem. No, no, go on, go on, go on, go on. Yes or no question? All I want to know is: Is Rwanda a safe place to send prospective asylum seekers and? Immigrants. Or actual asylum seekers. Not necessarily perspective, is it? I don't know. True. Yeah. But is it a, safe is it a holding is bay or is it people who have been asylumed and then moved to Rwanda? I don't know. It's a yes or no question, Paul. Is it a safe place to send them? Well, I'm going to say no, but actually, I, I don't actually know, to be honest with you. You say no. Am I right? No. I, I mean, I think you're probably reflecting on Rwanda's storied history of a genocide where people hacked other people apart with machetes, famously, and perhaps more recently concerns from a human rights perspective. Sorry, go on. You're making a serious point, go on. Maybe it isn't safe. A lot of people say that it isn't, but I think what you're forgetting, Paul, is if we pass a law that says it's safe, safe, and if we go over there and have a chat with them and get them to (laughs) really, really promise that it will be safe... Then it will be safe. Then, surely, it must be safe. It will be, yeah. And then, we can send maybe a couple of hundred, if we if we can get anything through the courts, of people over there. It only costs us £12,000 per person to send them there, along with the three million we've already given to Rwanda to do this at all. I mean, if you divide... If you divide like 500, let's say we manage to get 500 people through the courts, each one with an appeal, and send each of them to Rwanda. You'd be cheap. It's just 600 grand is what you're saying. 600 grand each, Paul, yeah. I mean, you could barely keep them in a hotel for 15, 20 years for that money, could you? <laughs> Whilst you painstakingly process their asylum application. What were you saying is this is uh, an impractical, an impracticable project. However, I think some people assume it is a vote winner, whether or not it works. This must be the assumption, mustn't it? You hear people say, we've got to send them somewhere. But first of all, I don't think we do have to send them somewhere, do we? I mean, the assertion is that the UK is full. Are we full? Well, we're full of something, but this is a strange, almost Malthusian kind of argument, isn't it? But, I mean, Elon Musk is the counterculture to all this, isn't he? I mean, he, he, he insists that there aren't enough people on Earth. And we need to repopulate it. I thought he was trying to repopulate or populate Mars for the first time. That's his goal. That could be his ulterior motive. Incidentally, I was watching on BBC Two last night uh, some weird, or BBC Four, some weird uh, documentary about the aftermath of uh, Netherlands or Dutch sperm banks. And the doctor who, who ran it, donated his own sperm and assumed to have maybe up to a thousand offspring who may or may not be into <laughs> breeding because they all come from the same town. Incredible. <laughs> So maybe well, Elon should get onto that kind of thing. Well, he may already have done that. 
course, we don't know, do we? So, no, I mean, the UK is not full. Why? Well, because we don't make our own food anyway. Uh, we never have done for the last 150 years, I don't think. We're not self-sufficient in food, no. We, we had a population of 35, 40 million back then. And we couldn't grow enough back then either. Uh, and we're no longer self-sufficient on energy anyway. I mean, the only argument is, how do we pay for these things now? Well, through through exchange, don't we? Through trade, trade of our goods with other goods that we need. So, I mean, the only argument for saying we're full is if the people coming in are going to be less productive than we want them to be. And there's no evidence for that. Well, not if they're going to earn £37,000 to get here, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's only if you're a, a British person wanting to marry someone from overseas. Oh, sorry. If you are both from overseas and settling here because you're in some kind of protected occupation, you only need a household uh, income of... 37 or whatever it is. Yeah, so you need basically half as much if you're both working and you're coming from overseas. But British people, if you want to marry someone from somewhere else, yeah, you need to be doing quite well for yourself, really. Only oh, well, the rich you, can't can count, you can't count your prospective partner's income into the bargain. It has to no, be not your... if you're British, Paul, no, no. Don't want the blood intermingling, I see. Yeah, it's a fair point. They don't know what they're doing, do they? They're going to be gone in a year. We had five of them. I was wondering if we get six before they go. Sunak has got through his Rwanda vote tonight. It went through, didn't it? That was yes. set to topple him if he didn't make it. But there was no serious prospect of that because there's plenty of Tories who think the Rwanda plan is... As I say, they think it's a vote winner for some reason. It probably is a vote winner for the increasingly shrinking demographic for which they're appealing. The Tory core voter has been dying off in droves since COVID started. <laughs> True, and also a simple fact, in terms of donations to the Tory party, there are more dead donations than there are live donations. God, imagine that, your dying wish to give your money to a corrupt political party. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to cement your legacy. Paul, I think we should continue this serious political discussion with our movie this week after the following music. Here it comes. Well, thank you for that new music, Richard. I did take the opportunity to listen to it. You did day. not. I did. Which one? The mid the midsection. The front section seems not to have changed. But which episode did you listen to? Because you'll find I've changed it up every episode since oh, I started. right. Okay, I'm not sure then. Now, I know I'm not going to catch you out with the film title this week for two reasons. One is I just heard you write it down before we started recording. So I know you know it. Oh, well, I was going to answer anyway. Please do. It's either known as Psycho Gorman or PG colon Psycho Gorman. I, I didn't Actually, know it had an alternative. Mm. However, the thing about that name Psycho Gorman it, is it does sound a little bit like a name a child would give something. It does a bit, doesn't it? And that's because that's exactly what happens in the fiction of the film. Mm -hmm. There you it's go. It's 2020 well Canadian. Oh, my gosh. Science fiction, fantasy, action, horror, comedy. There you <laughs> go. And it's directed by Stephen Kostansky. It who, is, yes. Written by him as well. Now, it starts with an opening crawl, as it were, text scrolling past that explains something about an evil... Overlord being captured from the planet Gygax, which I presume is a reference to Gary Gygax, the inventor of Dungeons & Dragons. I, I imagine. <laughs> yes, 
You see, this is why it pays to have experts on the panel. I would never have even suspected that, Richard. I mean, it's spelt differently. Gary Gygax is with a wine. Gygax, Planet Gygax is with an I here, G-I-G-A-X. Mm. But I think that must be where it comes from. But the opening scene is of two kids playing, right? Yeah, now are they playing space ball or what's it called? Well, it looks a little bit like dodgeball. It is not like be, dodgeball. Yeah, you'd be wrong. It's not dodgeball. It's Mimi's own invention, for that is the name of the girl. Yeah. Who is, is she, what, nine or 11 or something? No, no. more like 10 or 11. And her brother, her older brother, not much older, Luke. And Crazy Ball is very much like Crazy Dodgeball. Ball. But it's played, in this instance, it's played in the mud. And it also has some unique rules additions. Switcheroo. Switcheroo, yeah. If you're both throwing the ball at the same time, they hit and it bounces off. That's switcheroo. And well, that invokes, that invokes or codes for the situation which is let in on a switcheroo. Whoever punches the other first is then the winner of the switcheroo. Or the winner of the game. Kind of I think it's forfeit. A, it's an end all. It's an end all. It's, it's a winner takes all switcheroo. You get your opponent's points plus one transferred to you, don't you? Yes. Yeah, now that <laughs> in this case, though, it means that Luke, her brother, has to dig. It seems he has to dig a hole so that she can bury him in it. Yeah, I was. I mean, this never transpired, but I was a little worried about this. What's she actually going to bury him? Well, we're getting the picture that Mimi here is a handful, isn't she? She's yeah. she's got real girl boss energy. She's a feisty, headstrong. What's that? <laughs> There's What's a that non-gendered equivalent? term for describing strong females. I don't know, Richard. Go on, you tell me. No, there's, there's a female equivalent of Dennis the Menace, isn't there? That I think. Oh, oh yes, Minnie the Minx. Is it? Yeah, she's a real Minnie the Minx. Well, again, Minx is very gendered term, isn't it? While they're digging, or while Luke, Luke is digging, he digs up a buried disc in the earth with a glowing gem in the top of it. Uh huh. Sorry, can I just interrupt to get back to Crazy Ball? Did you ever play the drinking game Zoom Schwartz Profigliano? I did play the drinking game Zoom, Zoom Schwartz, Schwartz Profigliano. <laughs> which is an interesting kind of basketball game where you have to skip one or jump or send it across the room kind of thing. It's very similar to the drinking game basketball, which I think is where it came from. But in our friend friendship group, we seem to add another rule, just like she did points plus one. We had another rule. I don't even remember what the rule was. It was Ferreira Roche. Yes. I do remember that. Which is the ambassador's call, you see. And this is because <laughs> I think before most people in the UK, we were, we were ironically delighted by the naffness of European style at the time for our Russia adverts. Because they were just imported, the advert was imported. And compared to the raucous and sardonic advertising culture in the UK, this unadulterated and unreformed idea of class just seems so naff, didn't it? And enjoyably naff. That's right, yeah. It's an irony failure. That's, mm. why, that's why they look so weird. I'd never really worked that out. Well, but before the right. internet revolution, I mean, I think Europe was really stuck in a time warp, I think, wasn't it? But also, I think the, the British advertising scene was quite sophisticated. It's quite well advanced. Oh, much more. Yeah, much more. Maybe not anymore. Yeah. I don't know why that is. I don't know why that was, but I did do remember reading a lot of articles about... And we did have some crazy, flashy adverts, didn't we? Even British now, adverts 15 years before that played on style, like Cross Original Sherry, were tongue-in-cheek, you know? Yes, yeah. Even then, the, there was nothing like Mr. Ambassador and Ferrero Rocher. Just, they were very self-aware. But think about the Guinness adverts that we used to watch. The, yes, the Guinness. No, I was thinking more of the white horses on the beach with the poetry. 
and the driving. Oh, okay. Silk cut adverts taken to beer. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I remember reading an article about advertising companies trying to win the Guinness portfolio, which was incredibly prestigious as an advertising gig. One way would to be offered to do it for free, but advertising companies never do that, do they? Weirdly. No. I, They're I notoriously so. not good with money or accounts, are they? But, you know, on the other hand, you really are buying some real creativity, aren't you, to actually get an advert that cuts through and is memorable. I mean, I'm remembering those Guinness adverts even now. It, it, it is easy to not advertise advertising execs and account managers as being people just stiffing up lines and, and, and regurgitating. And to some extent, that probably is monkeys at typewriters, but you're right, to stand out. It's like, so difficult, there's just so much yes, competition yeah. out there. What this, what this article said, perhaps pretentiously, was that the problem of the Guinness advertising campaign, as it were, or concept, is that the Guinness egg, the curate's egg, it's, both, it's, got a both, it's got a hard, cool shell, but it's also, Guinness has a comforting mother's milk-like ambience to it. It used to be said, didn't it, that you could feed a baby on Guinness or you could live off Guinness and potatoes. Potatoes will keep you alive longest, yeah, compared to bread or rice, yeah. And if you think about how Guinness is advertised, it tries to do both of those things. It tries to go for a cool market. It tries to go for the youth market with edginess. But it also ends up with an Irishman in a flat cap quite often as well, doesn't it? So it plays on that same mawkishness as well. It's very difficult to thread that needle I imagine um, Marshall McLuhan of course famous for the quote the medium is the message mm-hmm. the message is the medium one way or the other and the interesting thing about that is when we were kids it was very true of advertising on television there were only like three four channels just the fact that something was on a TV advert told you something about that product right yes it was a complete cut above other adverts you would see in a newspaper or a magazine. Exactly. You know? That's why we all shopped at Rumbelows. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I you get you gist. I get you gist. Yeah, yeah. Like, think about a tiger in your tank. Yes. That advertising yeah. slogan. Very, very difficult nowadays to find uh, marketing slogans that cut through in that way. I suppose difficult. McDonald's have done it with I'm Loving It or whatever. Well, bars have raised. They tried to bring back the Honey Monster, uh, but he oh. didn't cut it. In the new era, huh. you know. The message is no longer the medium anymore. Television is not that important anymore. Mm-hmm. And the internet is awash with information. It's a data torrent. McLuhan is now not as right as he once was. Being on that box in the corner of your room is no guarantor of quality, is it? It's just another of many different mediums. Correct. Back to this movie. Mimi. So she's somehow. about to bury her brother. Yeah, sorry. Go on. <laughs> But they found this magical disc buried. He found it, luckily, because I think it was about to be buried. Mimi manages to release the lock on this by doing some basic sequence over it. And the disc starts to tremble, at which point, I think their parents are calling them in for dinner. (laughs) And Luke very hurriedly reburies the whole thing. Just shovels all the dirt back into the hole he'd made. Because it's 9pm. I think maybe it's not dinner, maybe it's bedtime. Well, he doesn't cover up the hole. He covers up the bottom of the hole where he's dug the thing out. Because later on, they have a debate, a dysfunctional family debate, about who's going to fill in the hole. Oh, that's very true. And everybody true. chooses yeah. their dad, who is a layabout English literature graduate. So. 
And before they go to bed, Luke and Mimi are both asking their parents about monsters because they seem to be scared that they found this thing underground. And the dad says, well, really, we are the monsters. We're humans, yeah. (laughs) They proceed to knock on the wall between their bedrooms to send each other messages. Yeah, they've got a code language, don't they? A knock code language. But they've done it so often the parents have already learned the code and knock on their wall and tell them to shut up and get to bed. I think she was asking if it could be Grandma buried there coming up. And I think, <laughs> doesn't Luke say that Grandma is in hell? Or is it that, that? One of them says that. We haven't got a sense at this point about quite how fruity and sort of turned up this movie's going to be. But the Grandma the grandma throwaway line might be an indication of the kind of riotous fun that this movie intends to inflict upon us. Yes, the tone it's going to pitch for. Of course, during the night, as you can imagine... Classic scene of a monstrous hand emerging from from the earth. It's a great scene. As something emerges, presumably this nameless evil that's been trapped in in the opening description. We change a a scene now. An abandoned warehouse. It turns out, I think, later to be a shoe factory, as we learn. Abandoned shoe factory, yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of homeless people. Yes, but thieves. Hoodlums. Ne'er-do-wells, the only way we could describe them. And they're all looking at an array of stolen goods that they've hauled in from somewhere. When this monstrous guy, huge, scaly, turns up, he slaps the boss guy away, so he flies across the room, and then uses telekinesis on the other two thieves. And using telekinesis, he pulls their heads and spines out of their bodies. Yes. And kills them. With gurgles and snaps, etc. Now, can I just interrupt to talk about the aesthetics of the costumery for the monsters? Because there are more yes. monsters to appear. I, 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 three things hit me. I'm not sure if I remember one of them correctly. The first is obviously Godzilla. The okay, second why? is Labyrinth. And the third is Never Ending Story. But I'm not sure if either of those two resonate with you as being... Like... Well, the latter two normally... Tra- traditionally considered more children's films, aren't they? Right. Well, okay. I'm just talking in terms of how the monster appeared. What, yeah. man in a rubber suit style? Yes, man in a rubber suit style. Not not giant kaiju city crushing. Well, it, the costuming and stuff is somewhere between Jim Henson and the Muppets. Is Jim it ironic, Henson, you think? <laughs> Jim Henson doing a, a horror movie. Is it ironic? This whole movie is ironic, isn't it, in a way? I think so, yeah. I didn't know. I mean... Is it meant to be presented as a kid's movie that's not a kid's movie? That's a difficult problem. I don't know the answer to that question. We'll have to get back on that. I think we're going to have to keep thinking about whether this could be described as a kid's movie or even a PG, literally. So he kills all the monster? He doesn't kill all of them. He kills two of the thieves. Oh, one begs to be spared his life, yeah. So the monster says, then live forever. (laughs) And we don't see what happens until later. Now, the monster has a certain way of talking, which is arch and potentious. Oh, it's highfalutin. It's, it's highfalutin, extremely... yes. This movie is funny. Like, few movies that we've seen in our reviewing careers. This movie made me laugh out loud quite a lot. And one of its secrets that I loved about it, I don't know, this just tickles me personally, is the juxtaposition between the extremely arch and high fantasy style that this monster has got the way of speaking, sort of gothic way of speaking, and his cosmic pronouncements about what he's going to do to people and, you know, his enormous power. 
contrasted with Mimi and her like little boss girl energy kind of thing. Yeah. It's just so funny. I don't know how better to describe it than that. But it's it's like puncturing the pompousness of it. So, as you say, there's some family dynamics back at back at home because the hole is there. I think I think the hole came back because he dug himself out. Oh, I see. Right. Anyway, so they follow the trail, don't they? Well, Luke thinks they should go to the cops. Mimi says, "I don't trust cops, not one little bit." Which is a great line for like a nine-year-old. Miss, they go through the woods to follow follow a trail to go to the first. They're going to right? school. Uh, they go to meet their friend Alistair, Luke's friend Alistair. Alistair. And there's a, oh dear! There's a great interaction here because Mimi is just so cool as this little girl, and she she kind Mimi's of has got the hearts for Alistair. Yeah, she kind of leers at him, doesn't she? And she says, "You're looking good in that outfit. Why don't you give me a twirl?" <laughs> <laughs> And then the bell rings or whatever, and they're, just, they're fixing to go to school, and she grabs her brother's math homework and just ch- chucks it over, over his head into the field, as it were. He goes, oh hey, my, my math homework. She's, she, like, bullies her older brother, doesn't she? Oh, very much so, yeah. She's very, very headstrong. But it is later that evening that they decide to follow the footprints from the hole. I see through the woods to the abandoned industrial unit where this shoe factory was. Mimi has bought an improvised weapon, which I think is like a dodgeball that she's put spikes through kind of thing. I see. But it's got jagged bits because I think Luke cuts himself on it at one point. Now the monster meets them whilst they look around. Do they see... They see dismembered corpses, don't they? And the half-dead or the undead man who's been spared his life. This is real nightmare fuel horror stuff, isn't it? Yeah. He's like, his eyes are open, but, but spinning around. <laughs> He's clearly being tortured alive kind of thing. Horrific. Incredible. The monster gets Luke in a telekinetic grip and starts threatening the planet with destruction. And then Mimi gets mad at him and orders him to stop. And as she does that, the gem that she's still carrying from when she found it in the ground glows in her pocket. The monster says, oh my God, that's the... The Jemadiah or something. And it gives her power over him. And I think he, he releases Luke, who steps backwards, and he knocks over the tortured body of the boss. And as it falls over, it, it shatters. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, he can die rather than be impaled in infinite torture. So he's introduced himself already, the monster, as the Archduke of Nightmares, hasn't he? But they don't like this name. In fact, Mimi's having none of it. Yeah, they begin spitballing new ideas for names, don't they? And I think Luke suggests Psycho Man or uh-huh. Gorman. And so she just like uses a bit of Tamesis or something. And she just comes up with Psycho Gorman. And that's it. She christens him. PG for short. And starts bossing him around. Which she isn't loath to do. I mean, she, she just falls into the role, doesn't she? Don't we cut at this point to another planetary system? Not quite. Not quite. Oh. She tells PG to go over to one side of the room and, and wait for them in the morning. And hilariously, oh. he makes disgruntled teenager noises <laughs> as he stomps over to follow her orders. <laughs> and Mimi is very excited about taking the monster around to, to show him off. And Luke's not so sure about that. And then we get a scene, as you say, in the Alien Council which is a sort of menagerie of different alien beings, isn't it? Who are very strange people. 
I'm trying to think what kind of what kind of movie reminded me of their appearance. Their appearance. Well, it's reminiscent of the scenes in Star Wars when there were cantina yes. band and there's different aliens. But these That's people are right. clearly in a council, like you might see in Avengers Endgame or something, of different aliens. And they're all discussing what to do about the escape of this creature that they had captured and entombed for the safety of the universe. They're going to send Super Warrior Pandora. Templar. Templar. Sorry. Templar Templar. Pandora. And she Uh, is lamenting that they were too lenient with the creature the first time. She vows to kill him this time. One of them says, not sure how you're going to do that because he's a a universe-killing super being. (laughs) (laughs) All these lines are delivered with with ironic aplomb, so... And Pandora, at this point, gets angry at him for lacking faith, which is very Darth Vader, and starts sort of choking him with her own telekinetic powers. Or does she just... Maybe she just grabs him by the neck, I don't remember. She actually gets... She summons a flying robot, which is very weird, which floats in, and tells it to summon a human into the chamber. And it apparently just picks a random human being from Earth Mm -hmm. who appears very shocked in the middle of the chamber. And she immediately squishes this human being into a cube of flesh. <laughs> that was strange, wasn't it? <laughs> and then, Almost like beef jerky, it's compressed flesh, isn't it? <laughs> and then she eats Taking out it. the water content, I imagine. She, she eats it, wipes it across her mouth, and then work. takes on the, the form of this human. That's how she's going to work. Okay, so she's part of this religious sect, the Templars. And, and yeah, uh, they are kind of sweeping the galaxy and removing evil. Uh, or are they, Paul? Are they are themselves they? the evil? Is live, laugh, love the evil of the suburbs kind of thing, you know? <laughs> so She dresses all uh, in white, though, Paul, so I think we're supposed to strongly signalled that she's the good guy. And meanwhile, Psycho Gorman is dressed all in black. Well, my neighbour's got live, laugh, love on her, her walls and it's all muted greys. Is she the good person? I don't know, Richard. Muted greys is neutral, isn't it? Very neutral. I mean, that's... Centrism is the worst evil of all, was they? <laughs> they do say, yes. It's more fashionable to say these days than previously, correct. City on the fence is a brave thing to do in many circumstances. I don't I don't believe that City on the fence is, is necessarily a, ca- a cowardly act. It must be painful to start off with, you know. It depends on the fence. Depending on what you're yeah. Now. The poor fence. Mimi and Luke and their friend Alistair now are going back to the shoe factory and they're carrying a TV with them. To take to that Mimi's made another pass at Alistair. He's not having it, you know. But he's <laughs> kind of... Is he her friend or is he her brother's friend? I think friend? I he know. is Luke's friend because he's always wanting to play wow. video games with Luke, isn't he? Right, with you. He's not so interested in Mimi, it's fair to say. But she... Uh, they all arrive at the shoe factory. Her plan is to show Psycho Gorman Earth culture through the television. Uh, yes. And she's also got a magazine... That she's showing him. <laughs> this is one of the funniest moments. It's got... Is it a catalogue or a magazine? But it's got pictures of... It's a standard magazine, but it's got a male uh, a male nude. It's like Smash male... Hits magazine, as it would have been, isn't it? Yeah. It's got a beach scene with, yeah, ma- males in swimming shorts. Ripped guys in swimming shorts. And it's like... <laughs> What's the line? Well, he says, I, I do not care for hunky boys. Or... Or do I? Or do I? <laughs> <laughs> Looking longingly at the hunky boy. 
They ask him what he is, and he says, that is a tale made in the blood of a million dead memories. (laughs) (laughs) And then he tells them the story. It's a flashback, isn't it? He was a slave working for the Templars. So the Templars are slavers, Paul. They are. They arrive. It's hearts and minds operations, isn't it? Just like in Dune, and I guess in many respects, the missionaries of uh, imperial and expanding power. And while he's working as a slave in the Templar's mines, he discovers a gem of peroxidite, which gives him (laughs) immense power. So he decided to assemble an army, like Oliver's army, didn't he? And he, he he gets a series of generals to lead the armies for him, the Paladin Obsidian, as they're called. Ah. And they ravage their way across the galaxy, presumably wreaking revenge against the Templar slavers, until, eventually, the monster is caught and imprisoned, and they use the gem to entomb him, presumably in the back garden of Mimi and Luke. <laughs> presumably thousands of years ago, who knows? I see. Um, so, uh, having heard this story, Mimi bids him watch the TV and learn how to be more fun. <laughs> and then I think the kids leave him. And as they leave, Psycho Gorman uses the TV to send an electronic message to the... Call the Paladins of Obsidian. Yeah. The generals of that organisation. When does Alistair get changed into something else? Oh, not yet. Because Alistair now oh. comes round to Luke and Mimi's... I think they're going to have tea. They've been invited round. And Luke and Alistair want to play video games, or vids, as they say. Um, but Mimi wants to go into the yard to throw balls at Luke. <laughs> Mimi is a bit bummed out that they don't want to have fun. So she summons Psycho Gorman. I think she just uses the gem. And then she throws balls at Psycho Gorman. And that's the point. And I don't know quite what provoked him to do it. I may have been... Looking away briefly, but in a very short span. That's it. Alistair doesn't want to have a date with her. Is that right? Ah, and so Psycho Gorman turns him into large jelly-like brain. I don't know blancmange brain. I don't know how you describe it. Sure, I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. Shuffling along on the ground with huge eyes on the front of it, oozing kind of wet underneath himself. Yeah, <laughs> because she's unwisely summoned Psycho Gorman to her home. The parents spot Psycho Gorman outside and the mum comes running out and hits... Mum goes believably crazy, doesn't she? I thought it was quite well acted for such a humorous move. But she hits him in a baseball bat, right? But it snaps, of course, because it's Psycho Gorman. Mimi intervenes to stop Psycho Gorman killing her parents. And then, I think we then get a montage, don't we? We now see that they formed a band... Psycho Gorman, he's on, phone about it. he's on drums. The drums. Luke's on guitar. Alistair, the brain, still a brain, is on the keyboards. And Mimi is singing lead vocals. And it's a pretty rocking song, actually. Something like, I, I, don't, I don't heckin' care what, what the frig you think or something. That's right, yeah. Kind of... Uh... Free, frigging is her word, in fact, isn't it? It's her swear word. Right? Hecking is too, yeah. Okay. It reminded uh, and me, and we get a montage of her forcing the family to accept him as one of them. Is that right? Basically, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. whilst their song plays through the montage, this whole thing though reminded me. Have you seen? It's the O'Keefe Music Foundation, the one where the girl does "Freak on a Leash," finding the chats, chat sent. 
That's Freak on a Leash by Corn. Sung by uh, an eight-year-old girl who crushes it. O'Keefe Foundation, yeah. yeah. Well done. It's great, isn't it? What do you think? It, it is very good, yeah. yeah. Same so, energy. But Same I, energy. I see the parallels, yeah. but I, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure that, yeah. you know, our, our troubadours of quiet level reach that level of, of accomplishment quite yet. No, no, but they're having a good go, aren't they? You've got to give them credit. Definitely, yeah. The montage ends with Psycho Gorman. Oh, they, they go clothes shopping, don't they? They do the standard, I don't standard that, 80s no, I don't montage remember. of them all dressing up in different outfits. Of course, obviously. Although it's not an 80s film, but there you go. The montage ends with Psycho Gorman throwing a flaming skull through the wall, which destroys her dad's TV, which she's watching at the time. Mimi goes to sleep. Inevitably, it's, I mean, the cops are going to catch up with him at some point. I think the next scene is when the cops catch up with him. Is that right? I think Mimi then goes to sleep with Psycho Gorman watching over her, as it were, guarding her, perhaps looking avariciously at the, at the gem. Well, once or twice, has he not already tried to snatch the gem? Clearly, he's, he's thinking about it. Now, Luke that night has a dream which Psycho Gorman invades, kind of psychically. That's right, yes. And he's trying to tell him, in the secret, to take the gem from his sister. And, of course, Luke, at the moment, is dead set against that. There's no way he's acting against his sister. I forgot about that, yeah. But Psycho Gorman is manipulating in his dream, isn't he? He's trying to cast doubt on his sister's trustworthiness. Whoa. This is something that Psycho Gorman can do, because later on, doesn't he appear to the dad, Greg? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Later on. It's very manipulative, certainly. But the next day, Mimi is teaching them all crazy ball. She's explaining how the game ends when you reach 67 points. And they're outside in the yard, aren't they, in a schoolyard. And that's when the cops arrive, as you mentioned. That's when the cops arrive. At this point, Psycho Gorman is dressed in a straw hat and neckerchief, kind of like a a cowboy or something, isn't he? The cops are clearly shocked by his appearance. And because I guess he's not a white person, they empty their guns into him. (laughs) But it doesn't work. To no avail, yeah. yeah. One of the cops asks who he is, and he responds by melting the cop to a horrific, melted but still alive condition. Yeah, now the, the, this guy acts this wonderfully <laughs> afterwards, you know, because this cop follows them around, like, in this sort of zombie-esque, kind of wobbly, broken, broken-limbed broken kind of hobble. It's just incredible. Yeah, he joins the gang, doesn't he, at this point? It's just amazing. I'm very funny, too. Psycho Gorman sends the unhurt cop away with a warning message to give to everybody. <laughs> and Alistair, the brain boy, crawls away sort of slimes his, himself away across the yard. And I think sensing that Alistair's not too happy, Mimi sort of runs over to him and comforts him. I think she might give him a peck on the, a peck on the, the brain. Brain, yeah. <laughs> he says, I think he asks her if he'll ever be normal again. And she says, probably not. <laughs> and gives him a kiss. We do see Alistair, I don't know if it's this point in the movie, heading back to have a normal meal with his family whilst he's still a giant pulsating <laughs> I think that's brain, at the very so. end of the movie, but you're right. As they're walking home, it's at this point that Mimi teaches Psycho Gorman the word frig and how to use it. Mm -hmm. And the cop, the melted cop is now with them, gives a a little card to Mimi, which is like a Valentine's card, but inside it says, please kill me. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so funny. No, I'm I'm not sure at what point does he randomly start firing off his gun towards his head and missing. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right, he's just trying to kill himself ineffectually, doesn't he? But maybe he's just unconcerned about the flying bullets because, you know, he's got no control of his limbs whatsoever. So as he's firing this gun, it can go off in any direction. At, at some point, Mimi makes a, a throwaway joke 
about possibly killing her brother or making Psycho Gorman kill her brother. And her brother immediately mm. obviously thinks, maybe I should be getting the gem off her because she's, she's a live wire. I have to say, if I was him, I might be heading the same direction. Well, see, Paul, I grew up most of my childhood as an only child until I got stepbrother and stepsister. But you had a sister, Paul. So I was wondering yes. whether... Older sister, not Whether younger. you recognise the sort of filial kind of interrelationship going on here. But you see, Mimi acts like she's the older sister, even though she's younger, doesn't she? She's the bothersome younger sibling. At this point, I think Pandora, the Templar, has arrived in human yes. form. And she goes immediately to the police station, where she says that she's searching for a nameless evil. And the unharmed cop who escaped earlier is in the police station explaining what's just gone on to the others. So obviously he knows what's good, that this guy's here. But Psycho Gorman's crew arrive at the same time, don't they? The paladins. At the same time on Earth, yeah, we see the paladins' obsidian arrive. So while Pandora... They've been summoned via TV. While Pandora is eating or frying the brain of this policeman to get information out of it, in the woods, yeah, the <laughs> paladin God. obsidian have arrived. Psycho Gorman, he orders the paladin's obsidian to kill Mimi and take the gem. Correct, yeah. But it transpires. Turn of events. They're not interested. They're quite happy with the, with the super straight Templar status quo. Yeah, the exists. balance of power okay. that's emerged. Because now the paladins get to share being king of whatever realm they're king of. And mm-hmm. Psycho Gorman isn't there to boss them around. So Mimi and Luke escape by the skin of their teeth. That's right. But I'm not sure if he's under the control of the... If he's under control of Mimi, one, could he decide to take the stone from her if she's told him never to take the stone from her? And two, could she not give the instruction, do not do anything that's not under my express orders? I mean, I don't... I didn't really follow the logic. Well, I, I, to what extent does the... To what extent do her orders have hmm. sort of dominion over it? I see, Paul. Seems like you're legislating about these fictional ancient rites of this gemstone <laughs> which I, I see so yeah so actually maybe the filmmakers don't know themselves <laughs> yeah maybe it's purely what makes best narrative uh, sense to them at the time I don't know no I don't mean that but also also but maybe in the context of the movie maybe there's no way to know the exact oh, rules no way to know yeah maybe it's not see maybe it's a left brain thing not a right brain thing or the other way around Anyway. We get a fight, don't we, between the Paladins and the Psycho Gorman. Well, in the woods, Mimi feels a little bit betrayed, though, doesn't she? So she orders a heartfelt apology out of Psycho Gorman. And then she unleashes his full power on them. <laughs> the kids get out candy bars and watch as Psycho Gorman kills them all, <laughs> including the melty cop. I don't know why, but he does. He kills them all in spectacular fashion. All of these alien Psycho... Not what they're called. Paladin Obsidian guys are really amazing character designs, aren't they? Including one who is like a giant tank of body parts who squirts kind of liquefied bodies or, <laughs> or ickle on people. Now, does he give any of them a hero's death? Well, he eats the guy with the crown, doesn't he? That's a hero's death, It is death, a hero's death, yeah, where he unhinges his jaw and eats them whole like a python or something, which is an amazing special effect to undertake. <laughs> I wonder what the budget was on this movie, because they really went to town on the special effects. Paul, I thought you always knew what the budget was in these things. No, it's not on any of the sites, unfortunately. Oh, interesting. I think it might be on IMDb. Is it? Yeah. It's got an estimated budget in Canadian dollars, 
I stress, of one and a half million. All right. Which I don't know what is. Uh, what is the Canadian dollar worth lately? That's just over a dollar, Canadian dollar. Canadian dollar is just over one American dollar, about 1.1 1. 1 or 1.2. Now, million. I don't think that's very good news because I think the box office takings were something like $100,000. <laughs> sure, but I think it's going to make more residuals on platforms, isn't it? I mean, it has all the feel of a direct-to-video release, doesn't it? If if that was such mm. a thing anymore, which it isn't. But a direct-to-streaming release? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I hope it does do do better than that, because I think this is a bit of a hidden gem, rather like the one that Mimi carries. Mimi seems quite into the horror, as I guess nine-year-olds mm-hmm. might be. Luke seems a little bit more shocked by the whole thing. And then, back home, scene changes... Dad has bought a brand new television. So doesn't PG invade Greg's mind? That's right, yeah. Like he invaded his son's mind, Luke. He just bought his new TV and he suddenly sees a headless sort of phantom face appear, sending a message to say, send help, come by car. So Dad jumps in his pickup truck. He drives over. Psycho Gorman gets in the back and the kids jump in the pickup. He runs over the heads of one of the paladin's obsidian the witch that had been beheaded during the fight that was crawling away on its own. He runs over it without realising. When they get back home, Pandora the Templar is with Mum. That's right. Psycho Gorman recognises her immediately, even though she's in human form. Pandora tells all of the humans to get away from Psycho Gorman. Luke immediately defects and runs over to his mum. The mum is calling Greg the dad lazy, isn't she? She's been needling yeah. for being lazy a couple of times in the film. I mean, there's a lot of dysfunctionality between them. They don't hide from either child, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, and her main gripe seems to be that he's an unsuccessful liberal arts graduate. But then why marry a liberal arts graduate? Greg decides he's not going to listen to his wife, and he drives away in the pickup saying, how's this for lazy, Susan? Which is... <laughs> <laughs> Such a limp, but... Passive-aggressive comment. It's a joke, Paul, isn't it? Because it's a pun on a lazy yeah. Susan. Oh, oh that's serious. See, see, it speaks to me. It's right up my alley, that humour. They drive to the shoe factory, don't they? Where Psycho Gorman, who has been injured in the fighting... Terribly, yeah. Almost, almost fatally. He asks, he asks Mimi for the gem to regenerate him or he will die. But Mimi says, no, you, no man, you're going to kill us all if I give you this. Dad has a dad and daughter moment where he takes Mimi aside and has a heart-to-heart with her basically says, do what you think is best kind of thing, which seems crazy to give the nine-year-old that power with a gem that will end in the universe. (laughs) Ah, the joys of permissive laxity. (laughs) At least you can't blame yourself when it all goes wrong. He actually... Pandora, doesn't Pandora turn up? I I was going to say, part of the heart-to-heart is Greg is telling Mimi a story from his childhood of a guy who shows up at school in a van offering to show his baseball card collection. <laughs> I got into the van. He got into the van, yeah. And what happened? And I had the most incredible experience of looking at really amazing baseball cards. I really thank that creepy guy for letting me into his van. <laughs> I think that's what... It's just so oddball. I think that's what it? convinces Mimi that she should give the gem to... <laughs> to Psycho Gorman, right? Do we get a bit more of a band play music? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Pandora transforms mum Susan... Into a true self. ...into another Templar by giving her a potion, doesn't she? And they team up together to go after 
Psycho Gorman. And the Alien Council are looking on in an amazement and horror of all these events transpiring. Mimi says she's going to go to pray for guidance, which you think, hello, that's a bit strange in the middle of this. But in fact, what she says, she says she wants to know what shades to wear. And now there's a new god in town and his name is Psycho Gorman. And she smashes a crucifix. (laughs) She then gets Psycho Gorman to swear not to kill her or her family or everyone else on the planet. (laughs) He agrees, but at that point she can't find a gem because obviously, Paul, what's happened to it? Luke has nicked it already. That's right, yeah. Pandora bursts through the door of the shoe factory with Mum following. Mum tells her, behave yourself, Mimi. And she says, nobody tells Mimi what to do. Mum and Dad square off against one another. Pandora is fighting and trying to capture Psycho Gorman. And Mimi and Luke are in got Luke and Mimi going at it, yeah. yeah. Psycho Gorman demands a right of combat with Pandora. Something he's entitled to do. Pandora says, what contest? Like, what game are we going to play? Psycho Gorman looks over at Mimi and obviously she says, crazy ball. (laughs) So now we have Mimi, Psycho Gorman and Dad versus Mom, Pandora and Luke in a game of crazy ball for the world whilst the alien council watches remotely. Pandora asks for a reiteration of the rules before it begins and Mimi says, no, you should have been listening from the start. (laughs) Well, they are very complicated, Paul. Especially the switch on rules. Plus one. It all ends in switcheroo, doesn't it? Of course. At the uh, end, it comes down to down to the switcheroo, and this is going to win, win it, isn't it? Once more, Mimi punches Luke first. So, so she gets Mimi's team all the other team's points plus one. Dad high-fives Psycho Gorman and breaks his arm, both comically and horrifically. <laughs> Pandora then goes in to strike Psycho Gorman down with the sword, but Mimi blocks her path, and... Her mum stops the blade from striking Mimi because obviously she's not going to let her daughter be hit by this Templar. I guess she's out of the Templar crew then, isn't she? Mimi asks for the gem off her brother and says, I'm the hecking best, frig all the rest. And so Luke throws the gem to Mimi. Psycho Gorman now kind of released, as it were, stops Pandora from striking Susan down. And she dies a hero's death. (laughs) Yes, that's right. But we don't see it quite so gory this time as he devours it. He actually rips Pandora's bones out while she's alive to make a sword out of bones and flesh. That's what it was. Okay. Pandora says, you will not stand between me and my holy destiny. And he says, frig off. Now he's learned that word. We see Mimi and Luke making up, don't we? Like they do the knock code to one another where she says, uh, I'm sorry. And then they hug. Pandora's blood gets spilt on the magazine and Psycho Gorman is distressed. He says, not my hunky boys. Oh, no. <laughs> not my rasbags. <laughs> Generally funny, moment. He actually uses Psycho oh. Gorman as his own name. Such a beautiful name. He has. He's learnt that his name is. And he's also learnt about love. So he's watched his family and now understands that he can be powered by love. And this is one of the funniest lines of the movie. He says, oh, now use that love to destroy the galaxy. So <laughs> Thanks to your family, I now know the true power comes from within love. <laughs> <laughs> end of, basically, yeah. Well, the end of the movie, we, we see Psycho Gorman leaving. We see, as you say, Alistair's house, where Alistair, brain boy, is having dinner with his mum and dad at the table. <laughs> <laughs> and we cut back to the alien council, where... I think they're all committing suicide with a handgun that one of them places on the table, aren't they? 
they all realise that Psycho Gorman's coming from them. Which is a strange way to end a children's movie. <laughs> or to set up a sequel. Who knows? So I guess, yeah, let's rob that furry mole. Is it a kid's movie or not? I mean, in some respects. Or is it written to sound like it or feel like it? It's kind of baffling, isn't it? I don't, I don't know what it's pitching for quite often. It's pretty gory. We, we have really uh, skipped over some of the more horrific, horrific gore bits. Horrific. Horrific. But, I mean, they, they don't pull any punches, do they? they? They show everything on screen. But is it because they're in rubber suits that it doesn't feel like that? Sure. Yeah, it's all larger than life. I was sort of amazed to discover this isn't from a cartoon book. It's an original story. That's the feeling, yes. All those kind of deliveries are there to be delivered within a picture dialogue box, aren't they, really? Did you ever see the comedy sketch show Big Train, Paul? No. It may have been when you were away, possibly. It has Simon Pegg and Mark Heap. No, I never saw that. One of the sketches that crops up a couple of times is like a Star Wars-esque sketch scene with a very Darth Vader-like character, one of the evil Mm. overlords. He's got this amazing kind of stainless steel jaw and a mask covering his face. They're having this highfalutin talk about ruling the galaxy. And suddenly the guy in the mask goes, ah, ooh, it's just caught me. This, the mask, it's very sharp just here. Is it, oh, it looks painful, yeah. Can you, yeah, can you help just lift it? Oh, ow. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing had that. That juxtaposition, It has yeah. that feel about it, doesn't it? It has, again, the pomposity being punctured by humour. Punctured by the, yeah. That kind of juxtaposition. There's that bombasticness or bombacity being punctured. I guess it's a form of bathos, isn't it? It's sublime and ridiculous kind of stuff. Or sublime and grotesque kind of movement between moods. So I thought it was all very effective, but it is a feature of kind of like kids' movies where villains talk big but aren't necessarily that frightening. Yes, it is a very kids' movie thing, yeah. And of course, ultimately, the the kids are the superheroes in this film. Mimi's a great character, though. I mean, she's just deliciously rambunctious and feisty, isn't it? She's, She's a great character. Of course, the humorous back chat really fills this movie. They've really plugged it with, with comic moments and, and lots of ideas. So I guess it's not a kid's movie, is it? Not necessarily meant to be cast as a kid's movie. just has some parallels. And yeah, it. the story arc where the, the villain is redeemed by love and he sees Mimi convinces him that, to trust people, basically. He's discovered to be fighting slave, slavery oppressors kind of thing. But he's taught by this little girl. It's a very kids kind of. You can kids to turn things on their heads. It's, it's yeah. like um, now I'm going to use I'm going to use love to destroy the universe. That kind of it's kind of like a kids gag, isn't it? Rather than adult humor. In I mean, you can see the story as being something on like BBC children's television, can't you, or something? Or maybe Definitely, ITV. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it is meant to be cast in the frame of a kid's movie. And all the horror and gory elements. Now, I'm not very familiar with this, but have you heard of, like, the tra- the trauma, trauma studio? Hmm. It's like a sort of Swamp Thing comic book character that's a... Swamp Thing, yeah. That's a blast. I think the best. trauma kind of studio does a lot of that kind of stuff with grotesque characters, stupid kind of horror violence and stuff. Of all the nicknames I had, I didn't have many. I was that kind of sad, sad kid that invented some nicknames for myself and tried to get other people to use them. Uh, but one that I was given without being asked was Swamp Thing. And I really didn't like it. Oh, really? You're not digging on it? Do you remember who gave me that nickname? It Richard? wasn't me. No, it was not. 
No, it wasn't it. It wasn't you. So I was just trying to see if I could I was see if I could start to guilt trip you then. If I could, I was gonna carry on with it. But but no, it wasn't you. I think I would have remembered. I would have called it you by now anyway, Paul, surely. You would have written it down. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it wasn't you. Yeah. Can we review this thing? Can we score I think it? We have to score with it. random. So categories. let's talk about acting. Yeah, like you say, the Lee female, Lee Char female, who played Mimi, her name is I've got it written down somewhere. Nita Joyce. Nita Hannah. Josie Hannah. Josie, Josie Hannah. It was great. Wasn't really, she? really good. Uh, and did it with such, like, very convincing. As well. Yeah. Very convincing. Her foil, Owen. Owen Meyer. I don't know his name. Owen, Owen yeah. Meyer. I thought, yeah, I mean, he, he's a great falter, wasn't he? Like, his slightly insipid weakness was quite well pitched, I think. So they really worked as a pair. And both of them bounced off Psycho Gorman very well. So. So I can't really knock the acting. I thought the parents were very yeah, good. Yeah, the parents were know. good, yeah. Dis- 12, a year, 12 years into a marriage, 15 years into a marriage, dysfunctionality lost in the middle of small America, small town America. It was all pretty good, I thought. It was all really good. So, For acting, I've got to give this an eight. I'm going to go seven. Okay. All right, so what what do we do now, next? <laughs> well, we've, digged, we've dug into the plot already. We're saying it is aping a child's movie, essentially, isn't it? But... I've got to come back to this thing. That this is... It's themed on myriad levels rather than compared to Charles' movie, isn't it? This is a funny movie. I defy you not to laugh at at least some of it. No, it is funny. So, oh, not my muscly boys, <laughs> hunky boys, chunky boys. boys. You've got to give it huge credit for that. So the plotting is threaded, I think, on a multi-level, in a multi-level way, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's a bit cliched. It's like, I mean, it's a parody in a way well, of, of cliches of. I mean, the, the thing they, they turn things upside down so many times that it's it's existing as a story and existing as a parody of itself, isn't it? At the same time, which is quite a sophisticated thing to do, I think. Yeah, I'm just watching a trailer now. Hilarious and absurd, which is true. So I'm going to give it for plot. I'm going to give it an eight. Wow. Okay, seven again from me. Okay, you're not as hot on this as I am, are you? I think. I enjoy. No, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and it did 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 make me laugh. I, I tell you more than anything, I, I was surprised by it because I wasn't. I didn't know what to expect. I can't remember why it was on our list. I still have not done the wiser, actually. Did I put it there? Maybe. I don't know. I don't think I did, actually. So, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by it. And I didn't know where it was going early on either, as well. But it, it continually surprises jumping from gore to, like, slapstick. <laughs> so we've done plot and acting. Do we do... We can't do fear factor. It's not really frightening, is it? Let's do some gore, gore scores. Gore score. Gore and rubber costumes. I mean, it, like I said, there's strong kind of Jim Henson vibes to a lot of the aliens, aren't there? And very imaginative. Mm. It's not wildly convincing, is it? No. <laughs> but it is imaginative. I'll give it a seven. The gore really worked for me. I just loved the sort of, I don't know how you say it, undead policeman. And, uh, <laughs> I think... Some I, really, really good... I was good reading in IMDb sort of... that the undead policeman guy is actually something that cropped up in another of this guy's movies. And so they sort of slotted him in here. Well, they could do it again. I'd love to see him in the next movie too. It's really good. Great acting, by the way, but the costumes and the makeup are really, really well done. So for gore and makeup and costumes and whatnot, I'm going to score it eight. All right. That's my good score, Paul. Let's just go for a straight overall, shall we? I don't know who you're supposed to recommend to watch this. I guess anybody, really. I mean... I mean, if, if Mimi likes all the gore in this film and she's only like nine or ten or something, then I guess perhaps any kid would like it. Maybe kids aren't bothered by it. Maybe kids don't care about 
people's face melting. Anyway, I don't know why I'm trying to work out who this should be for. I'll just give it a score, shall I? It's a seven. I think it's a seven. It's not going to win any awards. Okay. But it's certainly going to entertain you more than many comedy films. 7.5. I liked it. This is an, a, a hidden gem, I think. And one that deserves some support, I think, because I'm, it's not his first directorial debut. It's maybe his first serious budget direction, is it? I don't know. I would guess so, yeah. Potentially, yeah. Okay. So, then, listen. Dylan Dusted. On to the next one, Richard. What have you got lined up for Series 4, Episode 20? Yeah, I'm going to give you... Uh, now, I, I, I'm taking a leaf out of your book, Paul, because last week you uh-huh. gave a list which included two girls' names. Female names. I thought I'd do the same thing. Okay. So I'm going to offer you... A list of three girls. Four, names. actually. And they're all, they're all from our wanted list. So, first one is Pearl. Pearl. The second one is Lucy. Which I know about. The third one is Victoria. Which I know about. And the too. fourth one is Kotoko. That's not a girl's it's name. It's a Japanese girl's name, isn't it? Oh, okay. Well done. Wow. Gosh, Rich. <laughs> of course, we're Right, well, there's only one choice for me, having knowing about two of them. I'm going to discount the two I don't know about. Right. I'm going to go straight and plump for Victoria, Rich, for episode two. Okay. 20. A German film. German set film. in Berlin, which I've been to. I've been to Berlin, in Berlin this year, in fact. So that'll be fun. <laughs> I never said he wouldn't like fully. Okay, all right. Until the next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Ciao for that. See you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you.